Welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker, and each week we work our way through sermons preached by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a man gifted by God through the Spirit for the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. You can follow us in that weekly reading scheme on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or you can sign up for a weekly newsletter from mediagratii.org podcasts, finding us at the heart of Spurgeon, and then uh, signing up for that newsletter where you'll get a PDF of the week's featured sermon, so that once a week, if you can't manage all seven days, you can read one sermon and you can hopefully get some benefit from that. And the benefits are twofold. On the one hand, as Christians, we find our hearts warmed by the truth that Spurgeon preached, and I trust, if you're not a Christian yet, that it will be a help to you in seeking and finding Jesus Christ. And then, if you are in any way involved in uh, preaching or teaching or in some other way serving, then the sermons of Charles Spurgeon help to instruct us and direct us as to how we can do that in a more God-honouring way. So this week we've been reading through sermons 661 to 667 and we've reached sermon 662 in the list of featured sermons. That sermon is entitled Consolation in the Furnace and it's taken from Daniel chapter 3 and verse 25. The text is, He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they have no hurt and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. That sermon was preached at the end of November, Sunday the 26th, 1865, by Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle there at Newington in London. It's a fairly straightforward sermon, and in fact it's really well arranged, especially at the front end of it. Uh, It seems to uh, develop as it goes, but at the front end, there's a really nice balance to the whole arrangement of the sermon. Spurgeon's concern here is that uh, Christians, and perhaps especially young men, learn from the example of Daniel's three friends who were thrown into the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian monarch. He says he wants us to learn from their example, both in matters of faith and religion and matters of integrity in business, never to sacrifice their consciences. Lose all, says Spurgeon, rather than your integrity, and when all else is gone, still hold fast a clear conscience as the rarest jewel which can adorn the bosom of a mortal. And so he asks, if in the providence of God it should be the case that you are and continue to be a loser by conscience, you shall find that if the Lord pays you not back in the silver of earthly prosperity, he will discharge his promise in the gold of spiritual joy. I would have you remember that a man's life consists not in the abundance of that which he possesses. To have a clear conscience, to wear a guileless spirit, to have a heart void of offence is greater riches than the mines of Ophir could yield or the traffic of Tyre could win. His concern then, and he immediately connects the biblical narrative with the challenge of Christian living today, is that, like Daniel's three friends, we maintain that integrity before God and that clear conscience before God and men, void of offence, to use the biblical language, regardless of the price that we might pay. Burn, Christian, says Spurgeon, if it comes to that, but never turn from the right way. Die, 
but never deny the truth. Lose all to buy the truth, but sell it not, even though the price were the treasure and honour of the whole world, for what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Now, he says, that's just where I'm uh, starting off, but I, I don't want to use the whole of it simply as an incentive to young Christians, but he wants to focus in on what Nebuchadnezzar saw when he saw his victims quietly surviving the flames which he intended for their instant destruction. And so I think Spurgeon here pastorally is maybe setting up some of these young Christians who are setting out on life in the way that he's just described and urging them, but he also wants to bring consolation to afflicted Christians everywhere. So he has this quite broad goal in mind, and in that respect, God willing, any one of us listening can be a beneficiary. But I think his introduction uh, perhaps just opens the ears and hopefully the hearts of those young believers who would have been listening to him. So it's a it's a careful and, and thoughtful and quite clever way of making sure that there's a, a general application, but also a particular target who might now need to be listening particularly carefully. And the, uh, the sermon itself is just a little bit more complex uh, than many that he preaches in that it has five points. And so he'll move fairly swiftly through these. What he wants to do is look at where God's people often are there in the furnace. And that's uh, quite a developed section. Then what they lose in the furnace. Then what they're doing in the flames. Then what they don't lose while they're in the fire. And finally, who is there with them in that moment of trial? So that's our uh, progress through Spurgeon's sermon on consolation in the furnace, number 662. We commence, says the preacher, by gazing into the place where God's people often are. Three of them here in a burning, fiery furnace. And, says Spurgeon, that's perfectly normal for God's people. Through much tribulation, we inherit the kingdom. He tells us that there is no life so joyous as that of a man bound for the celestial city, and on the other hand, there is no life which involves so much conflict as does the life of a pilgrim to the skies. So there's true joy, but there's also particular trial, particular challenge, particular difficulty. What are then the, the furnaces into which Christians are cast? He divides them into three groups, and under each of these groups, he's got three different elements. So there's the furnace which men kindle, the furnace which Satan blows, and a furnace which God himself prepares for his people. So the furnace which men kindle is made up then of these three particular elements, or uh, might have these three particular strands to them. There is open persecution, there is oppression, and there is slander. And these are typically an expression of religious antagonism or animosity, which Spurgeon says is always the worst of all hatreds and incites to the most fiendish deeds. Persecution is as unsparing as death and as cruel as the grave. The believer in Jesus, who is one of a people everywhere spoken again, must expect to be thrown into the furnace of persecution by his fellow men. Because if the world hates us, it hated our Lord before it hated us. And so you've got this open persecution. 
you've got this this anger and this fury and though you may not suffer it individually you may not suffer it personally yet nevertheless it is the lot of many of God's people around the world and even in places where we enjoy or seem to enjoy a greater measure of shall we say public acceptance yet if you get up close in particular families or when you're engaged in particular activities if you're evangelizing face to face there often will be a more open persecution or there's oppression and he connects the experience of the children of Israel in Egypt with this and he says it's far from dead Under the freest form of government, there's always a possibility for the heads of households and the masters of establishments to practice the most galling oppression toward those whom they dislike. And again, whether you're in families or in a place of work, if you're an open Christian and there is a God-ordained authority around you or over you which is against you, then you will know the kind of oppression, the kind of manipulation, the kind of pressure that it's possible to bring in order to make your life a misery. There's also the furnace of slander. The ripest of fruit will be pecked at most by the birds, and those who have most of God's image will have most of the world's contempt. Expect then, he says, to be misunderstood. That's man's infirmity, but expect also to be misrepresented, and that is his willful hatred. And where the the child of God especially stands up in the cause of righteousness, there you can expect to be slandered and assaulted and undermined, your character attacked, your reputation trampled upon. He gives the example that we hate the treading down of the needy and we abhor wholesale butchery quite as much when perpetrated by Englishmen as when laid to the door of Turks or Russians, referring to some of the conflicts of the day. And however unfashionable it may be, we maintain the opinion that liberty is the birthright of every man, not only the liberty which permits his neck to go free from a chain, but the liberty which allows the exercise of the rights of manhood. Suffering humanity is to be aided even when it wears the ebon hue, even when it's black-skinned, and high-handed wrong is to be impeached even when the much-despised negro is its victim." Spurgeon may be referring here to his own experience where his name was slandered and his writings were burned by those who were still engaged in and defending the practice of slavery, especially in the American states of the day. And so he's he's saying that there's uh, this this price to be paid for righteousness We're the friends of liberty, he says, but we never taught rebellion. We endeavour to implant manly principles of independence and freedom, but we put side by side the gentle precepts of the loving Jesus. Yet, despite that care, scandals of every sort we expect to receive, and we count them no strange thing when they happen to us. Spurgeon's point then is that amongst men there's an antagonism to true religion that results in open persecution, oppression and slander. But there's also a satanic furnace, temptation, accusation and suggestions of blasphemy. And again you see here Spurgeon's got these three particular manifestations of trial and these three elements to each of them, which gives this opening section a a, a balance and a thoughtfulness, even if they're not all the same length in terms of the time he devotes to them. So, 
You've got temptation, where the evil one attacks you with regard to your own besetting sins. You've got accusation, where he hisses into your ear and tells you that your sins have destroyed you, that God will no longer be gracious to you, that you have become a hypocrite, that your experience is is your vain imagination, your faith mere presumption. He will attack you in terms of your, your inward convictions and expectations. And then suggestions of blasphemy things that erupt in our hearts. He, he prompts us or, or nudges us or assaults us in various ways uh, by introducing around us these, these thoughts and, 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 uh, and even words at times and then making us think that they're coming out of our hearts rather than laid upon us by his own uh, approaches and assaults. He lays his black offspring at our door, says Spurgeon, as if they were our own home-born children. And this sometimes is very hard to bear when curses against God and his Christ will come across our soul. So he's referring here to the experience of God's people when it seems like the vilest and most awful thoughts and words rise up and we feel it's coming up out of us. And Spurgeon says that could be Satan assaulting you. Temptation? accusation and these prompts or suggestions of blasphemy. And then sometimes God himself prepares a furnace for his people. So this is not a direct satanic assault. It doesn't come by the instrumentality of men, but there's physical pain. Spurgeon says he only thinks little of pain, who's a stranger to it. And then perhaps even worse, bereavement, when you lose a family member. And then temporal losses and sufferings, so that the the things which you thought you could rely upon in this world are taken away from you, whether it's your, your riches or your property or your relations or whatever it may be. And this is God's will in order to do us good. It's a mysterious providence, but it is still the Lord's intent to purify his people in the furnace. As silver is purified in a furnace of earth seven times, simply because it is silver, so are saints afflicted because of their preciousness in the sight of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, if the Lord God values us, then he will purify us. He will not allow us to go on with dross where we could have it righteously, graciously and God-honoringly burnt out of us. And so he says, a couple of summary statements reminding us that in the context, the Christian is exposed to very peculiar trials, that in this case, the furnace was heated seven times hotter. There was a a peculiarly fierce heat. And at times the Lord appears to deal in that way with his people. And then these holy champions, these three believers were helpless when thrown into the furnace they were cast in bound. They were unable to help themselves at this point. And he says, sometimes you enter into a trial when you are utterly bereft of all human help and strength. It feels like you're utterly overwhelmed. But where Jehovah places his saints, says the preacher, they are safe in reality, although exposed to destruction in appearance. So this then is where God's people are often found in the fire 
a fire that is sometimes from the antagonism of men, sometimes from the fury of the evil one, and sometimes by the gracious intent and purpose of God himself. Now, what do you lose then in the furnace? Here's the second point. Your bonds. That's what Spurgeon says. Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And yet I see those men loose walking in the midst of the fire. Spurgeon says a true Christian's losses are gains in another shape. And this is just one of those little glimpses into Spurgeon's hermeneutic, the way he interprets the Bible, how an incidental but not insignificant detail gives him an insight into spiritual reality. Many of God's servants never know the fullness of spiritual liberty till they are cast into the midst of the furnace. Now, I don't think Spurgeon is saying that this is the primary point of the text. I think what he's saying is it is illustrative. And because it is illustrative of genuine Christian experience, therefore he's going to bring it to bear. And he does so very helpfully. Many Christians, he says, are bound and fettered till they get into the flame and the flame consumes the bonds in which they had been willing to be held captives. And so he picks up then those three different kinds of furnace, the fire of human hatred, the fire of satanic antagonism and the fire of divinely appointed affliction. And he says, in each case, is it not the case that these flames can be the very means of loosing us from our bonds? In the fire of human hatred, sometimes the cords of the fear of man and a desire to please mankind are burned. We get to the point of basically saying, I'm already despised, I'm already hated, I have nothing left to lose, I, I, I ought to simply speak the truth and leave the consequences with God. When persecution rages, it's wonderful what liberty it gives to the child of God, says our preacher. Never a freer tongue than Luther's, never a braver mouth than that of John Knox, never bolder speech than that of John Calvin, never a braver heart than that which throbbed beneath the ribs of Wycliffe, never a man who could more boldly confront popery than John Bradford or Hugh Latimer. But under God, these men owed their liberty of speech and liberty of conscience to the fact that the world thrust them out from all hope of its favour and so loosed their bonds. So sometimes the, the hatred of mankind is so intense that it actually liberates us from any expectation that we could win their approval and so sets us free to serve God regardless of the way in which men esteem us. The same is true with regard to satanic assaults. It brings us straight to Jesus Christ. Sometimes we, we are tempted to look at ourselves. And so when uh, Satan assaults us in regard to perhaps our experience or our feeling or our expectation, it carries us back to God. And so Satan overreaches himself as he so often does. Temptation is a great blessing, says Spurgeon, when it looses our bonds of self-confidence and reliance upon frames and feelings. And then those divinely appointed afflictions. Many believers sing most sweetly when providence clips their wings or puts them in a cage. They're very mute and their heart towards the Lord is very heavy till they are involved in trouble and then their faith revives, their hope returns, their love glows and they sing God's praises in the fire. We need to rush on with Spurgeon. He says time fails us and it does us also. 
In the third place then, what saints do in the fire? They're walking. And Spurgeon says that's a symbol of joy, ease, peace and rest. They're not flitting about like unquiet ghosts, as if disembodied spirits traversing the flame. But they're walking with real footsteps, treading on hot coals as though they were roses, and smelling the sulfurous flames as though they yielded nothing but aromatic perfume. Enoch walked with God. And this, says Spurgeon, is the Christian's pace, his general pace. Yes, he sometimes runs, but his general pace is walking with God, walking in the Spirit, and you see that these good men did not quicken their pace nor slacken it. They continued to walk as they usually did. And again, here's the illustration applied to spiritual experience. They had the same holy calm and peace of mind which they enjoyed elsewhere. So God in his mercy gave these men a calmness, a confidence, a peaceableness. They were at ease even in the flames. Their their strength was there. Their calmness was there. Their ease was there. They were, there was even a, a pleasure there. And we'll come on to why that was. And so says Spurgeon, a, a stream of trouble may almost overturn a believer, but a flood of trials will make him rise as the ark rose nearer to heaven. And so perhaps even in the deepest and fiercest of troubles. That may be the very moment in which we are carried heavenwards and the Lord is pleased to bless us in particular ways. Then, in the fourth place, what they didn't lose. Remember, they've lost their bonds and they're walking there in the midst of the flames, but they did not lose anything else. They had no hurt. The child of God loses in the furnace nothing of himself that is worth keeping. Spurgeon says in particular he doesn't lose his garments either. Uh, Their coats were not singed, and so you always have the beauteous dress which Christ himself wrought out of his own life and died in the purple of his own blood. You'll ever be clothed in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Then you cannot lose your treasure because your life is truly hid with Christ in God beyond the reach of harm, to sum up then, you lose nothing. And he uses the example of Chrysostom, who was threatened with banishment by a particular empress. You cannot do that, he says, for my country is in every place, every clime. I'll take away your goods. No, you can't do that, for I'm a poor minister of Christ and I haven't got anything worth taking. I'll take away your liberty. He said, your iron bars cannot confine a free spirit. I'll take away your life, she said. Well, you may in one sense, Chrysostom replied, but I have a life eternal which you cannot touch. And the empress left him alone because she couldn't do him any harm. Now, perhaps she could have taken all of those things, but still she could do him no harm. And Spurgeon's realistic. I know that you dread that furnace. Who would not? But courage, courage, courage. The Lord who permits that furnace to be heated will preserve you in it. Therefore, be not dismayed. You cannot, he says, be illustrious without conflict. You cannot be a conqueror without fighting. You cannot by any possibility have anything to witness to the glory of God unless you test and try the promises and the faithfulness of the Most High. And you cannot do this except in the furnace of woe. Now, so far, the sermon might seem like a 
an exercise in trying to drag a tiny bit of consolation from a, a, a really miserable experience. And you might be saying, well, is this really encouragement? I thought Spurgeon wanted to console Christians of all kinds and especially to give young believers a good reason to, uh, to, to, to press on in a righteous course and not to give up the truth of the gospel and not to sully their consciences for any reason. And yet, so far, you've told me, well, you can you can lose your bonds and you won't lose anything else of any real value and you'll be able to walk about, but you're still going to be in the flames. He says, remember then who was with them in the furnace. There was a fourth, so bright and glorious that even the heathen eyes of Nebuchadnezzar could discern a supernatural luster about him. Spurgeon says this is the most pleasing part of the text. This is where the true comfort lies. It's not merely a, a sort of a pragmatic calculation where on balance it's not as bad in the furnace as you thought or you might get a little more out of it than you thought you'd lost. No, Christ was there. And what appearance he had, Spurgeon isn't going to try to describe, but it was recognisably a supernatural glory. There was a godlike air about that fourth man. Beloved, he says, you must go into the furnace if you would have the nearest and dearest dealings with Christ Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean you throw yourself into the flames, but if you are taken helpless and humanly hopeless and cast into the flames of a human hatred or satanic aggression or divinely appointed testing, then that is where you can anticipate finding Jesus Christ. The richest thought that a Christian perhaps can live upon is this, that Christ is in the furnace with him. When you suffer, Christ suffers, and the presence of Christ is the brightest joy beneath the stars. O oh, Christian, seek it. Do not be content without it, and you shall have it. Now that is a great consolation when we think about the trials that we may be facing. And I want you, as it were, then to, to go back and think about the furnaces which men kindle, the open persecution that you may face, the oppression you may be under, the slander that you may experience. With whom will you walk under those circumstances if they are because of a pure conscience before God? Christ himself will draw near. If Satan tempts you, if he assaults you with accusations, if he incites you to blasphemous thoughts and tries to make you think that you yourself are cursing God and then will die, then who will join you? Who will come to you? Who will uphold you? Who will favour you with the light of his countenance? Christ himself. And in the midst of your most awful physical pains and your deepest griefs and your most crushing losses and sufferings, who will draw near to you when you feel utterly helpless and hopeless and alone? Brothers and sisters, it is Christ who will be with us there and then. And we ought to look for him. We ought to anticipate him. There's a, a story that is spoken, I think Spurgeon himself mentions it somewhere, of a, a man who was taken to be martyred for his faith. 
and though he was steadfast in holding to the truth, he lost all his present sense of God's kindness and God's mercy, his, his own assurance of those things. His experience of them seemed to leave him, and yet he went because he believed that God was true. And it was when the flames were lit, physical flames in this instance, that the man began to cry out, Now he comes, now he comes. My friends, it is not experience alone. It is not felt experience that must sustain us when these trials come. But it is the, the assurance that God has spoken, the conviction that God is true. And when we hold to him, even if bereft of any immediate feeling, any sense, any uh, experimental hope in our hearts, that we may anticipate that then Jesus Christ will come. And Spurgeon gives a warning that this then is the, the comfort and the consolation of a believer and that there is a flame that is being heated for the unbeliever. And if they are cast into the flames of divine wrath without the, the, the consolations and the comforts and the salvation that is accomplished by Jesus Christ, then what a fearful and terrible experience will be theirs. Christ will not be with them in those flames, but over them. He will be sitting on his throne, and the glance of his lightning shall perpetually make that flame to burn more terribly, more terribly evermore. If you are thrown into Nebuchadnezzar's furnace, he said, it will be all over in a moment, but the punishment of the wicked is of the same duration as the reward of the righteous. Justice will ever exist in the divine mind and will ever have objects upon which to display itself. And so, as he concludes, as he so often concludes, he turns his attention to the unconverted, where he speaks more entirely, more completely to God's people as he has throughout this sermon. He never never finishes without at some point, and often here at the end, uh, speaking to the unconverted who are present. And he's calling upon them to remember that there's another fire altogether, the flames of divine judgment. And it is Christ that we need now that we may be delivered entirely from them. And if we are delivered from the flames of divine wrath, through faith in Jesus Christ, his blood and righteousness to cover us, then whatever other flames may come upon us, we are safe indeed, happy now and happy forever. I hope that that's been an encouragement to you also. Next week, God willing, we're breaking into the 12th volume of sermons, the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, volume 12, we're reading sermons 668 to 674, and 674, the last of those sermons that week, is our featured sermon for the week. It's on the mighty arm from Psalm 89 and verse 13. Now, I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast and it's been a blessing to your soul. If you'd like to share that blessing with others, then please do leave us a review on your favorite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. I'm told that it makes a genuine difference. But thank you for listening. We'd love you to subscribe and to follow along week by week as we try and learn more of Jesus Christ from the heart of Spurgeon.